they had a final interview with the director of, of systems and engineering. He says, so what are you hoping to do? And I, I said something, I don't know what it was. And he says, well, we don't really do that here. We do blah, blah, blah. And the words right out of my mouth were, oh, that's what I want to do. From Grindstone Media, this is Nebraska Made, a narrative journey through the lives of Nebraska's most inspiring business leaders. We unpack the intimate details of how our guests navigated obstacles and built their companies in pursuit of the good life. I'm JT Martin, and today we hear from Doug Durham, the founder of the venture capital fund, Nebraska Global, and the software engineering agency, Don't Panic Labs. Our guest today, Doug Durham, calls himself a jack of all trades, master of none. But that's just his humble way of saying that he's an incredibly talented generalist. His curiosity has got him through life, and he's done some incredible things to advance the tech industry right here in Nebraska. I was uh, born and raised in Omaha, actually. Lived in the same house my entire life growing up. My dad built the house. What were you like as a kid? Did you want to start businesses or build things? No, that would never cross my mind. I mostly just wanted to play baseball. You know, I was just interested in being a kid, and um, I didn't really get, even even when it came to finishing high school, um, you know, it was probably, I was probably way more focused on my friends and just, you know, doing fun things. And yeah, college was going to come, and that was going to be a, another great experience. But in terms of what I was going to study in college and what that was going to lead to, I really didn't know. And to be honest with you, that my entire life has kind of been that way. If the, 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 the one consistent thing about my trajectory is that there was never a grand plan for anything, which I think is not a bad thing. You studied electrical engineering, and I, I heard that it's because it seemed mysterious to you. Yeah. What was it that seemed mysterious? I've always, so I didn't know anything about it. And this whole world of electronics and digital and things like that, I didn't know. It, I, you know, my dad was a carpenter. He built houses um, uh, for a living. He had a construction company, you know, just a small construction, just him, actually. Um, but he, and he was a cabinet maker for Omaha Public School. So I, I kind of knew those sort of trades a little bit. But electronics just seemed really, you know, and this is the dawn of the computer age, and I just didn't know anything about it, you know, and, and it just seemed, yeah, it just seemed mysterious and, and kind of cool yeah. as it, for an engineer, I, I suppose. Kind of futuristic. Was there like a movie right. that you saw, like, that inspired that or anything, Star Wars or something? No, you know, it, this is one of these things that I have some, I've gone down the path of certain things because I just know nothing about it. And, and this was something I knew nothing about. It was like so far afield. I can give you multiple examples of that. There's that, choosing electrical engineering. There is, when I joined the Air National Guard, I was already in college, and I could choose two career fields, civil engineering or security police, which is law enforcement in the military. Which one do you think I chose? Civil engineering. No, I chose security police. <laughs> Why? You know, because I knew nothing about that. I'm like, here's a new experience for me. Yeah, it would make total sense to do civil engineering. <laughs> I mean, I did end up in civil engineering, um, but the other the other reason I chose engineering, and this is a little embarrassing to say, is that um, it's a the engineering college doesn't require any foreign language, and uh, it doesn't have a foreign language requirement. <laughs> so, so your life has kind of followed this path of greatest resistance <laughs> narrative, where yeah. you're going after things that really challenge you and that you don't specialize in. Yeah, I think I think that's actually pretty accurate. I've always kind of looked for that next thing that could kind of push me. It took 
me four and a half years to graduate um, just because of the class load I was taking. And uh, engineering takes about 12 credit hours more than other degrees to graduate. So anyway, that's my excuse. <laughs> so that fall of 88 was when they all the interviews were happening. And I interviewed with, you know, uh, a, a variety of different organizations. And, you know, I even, again, going down the path, the CIA came and was interviewing people. I'm like, hey, that's kind of cool. Maybe I want to work for the CIA. Um, but there was three jobs then that I that I had job offers for with Westinghouse out in Pennsylvania, McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis, and then the, um, the U.S. Navy out at, in Corona, California, which is just outside of Los Angeles. And um, <laughs> a, a funny story about the job interview with McDonnell Douglas. And um, I interviewed in Lincoln, and then they had a final interview with the director of, of systems and engineering or systems down, down in St. Louis. He calls me up and and he says, um, you know, you know, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. So he says, well, so what are you hoping to do? And I, I said something, I don't know what it was. You know, I, you know, I didn't really know what an electrical engineer did at that point. And I'm a senior in college. And he says, well, we don't really do that here. We do blah, blah, blah. And right, the words right out of my mouth were, oh, that's what I want to do. <laughs> Whatever you'll give me money to do, that's what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, and they still hired me. So, <laughs> so Doug has subscribed to this road less traveled lifestyle, and he's found himself walking backwards into a job at McDonnell Douglas. But this wasn't any ordinary electrical engineering job. No, this was a top secret military contract job that would need special security clearance just to even know what the job entailed. The first program I worked on... Um, I had to wait six months to get on the program. So I got hired and we moved down there in January. And um, I was I sat there and waited for an additional security clearance. I already had a security clearance from my, I was in the Air National Guard already at that point. But they had to have a different one. They're like, yeah, the project you're coming on, I can't tell you about it, but we'll, you know, when you get through this thing. During that period of time, I read the entire congressional report on the space shuttle Challenger accident. It was like, Two inches thick. But there was nothing else for me to do. There was nothing they could give me to kind of prep me because it was classified. So when they when that finally did come through, they took me over to this hangar and told me about the project I would work on. And inside this hangar was the front fuselage of the of what was the YF-23 advanced tactical fighter. It was the craziest looking plane I'd ever seen. When you saw it, were, were you just blown away? Yeah. Could you even believe that you were going to be working on this? Yeah, it was crazy. And I, you know, I couldn't figure out why they hired me into this program. I mean, don't they have other seasoned people? But there was a lot of young people on that program. So Doug spent seven years working at McDonnell Douglas as an avionics integration engineer. And in the meantime, he gets his master's in finance simply because he didn't know anything about the field. So he was curious. But at the end of the day, in 1995, something about Nebraska called him back. So we, after I finished graduate school, St. Louis, as much as we had, had those strong relations with those people, there's twice as many people in St. Louis as there are in Nebraska. It, it, and it, you feel it. It's a big city. And I, you know, I didn't, you know, and it was with a lot of ugliness, to be honest with you, that I really didn't, that weighed on me. And I can remember talking to my friends in St. Louis and letting them know that I was moving back. And I always kind of been, there weren't that many Nebraskans working at <laughs> but also there weren't that many people from St. Louis. They were people from all over the Midwest. So most of the people there were from Iowa, Illinois, and things like that. And they're like, you're moving back to Nebraska? And I'm like, all right, here it comes. They're going to tease me about being a Nebraskan again. 
And I said, yeah, I, I, I just, I miss being able to see the horizon and I miss, you know, the, the, the long days, you know, long e evening sun in the summer. And I just miss being around my family. And, and they're like, I, I don't want to move back to Iowa. I don't want to move back to Illinois. You know, they, they, they weren't really harassing me about Nebraska. They were just perplexed that I wanted to move back to where I grew up. So Doug and his wife moved back to Nebraska to be close to their families. They lived with Doug's wife's parents, and they didn't even have jobs lined up when they came back, but they went for it anyway. Doug again found himself doing something new, and he began working for a technology company as a software engineer. Well, this path proved to be very profitable for him as he became involved in the Lincoln startup community and was eventually introduced to Steve Keen, the CEO of a software company called MindVision. It, it sounded like MindVision was sort of a, another stepping stone for you. It was a huge one, actually. Um, they were already quite successful. We landed on this idea of building an e-commerce company um, that would allow people to buy software within the software. And back in 1999, this would seem pretty novel. So you're trying a piece of software, and, and maybe it's got a 30-day trial. And then if you wanted to purchase it, you would... Back then, you would have to like contact the publisher or maybe go online and buy something. And then maybe they would email you a registration key that you would then put within your software and it would become a full licensed version. Well, our idea was to create a piece of software that they could embed within there so that if they wanted to buy, they could buy it right there. Eventually, within probably about five or six years, I, I was kind of leading all the engineering for that. Um, mostly, I kind of think it's just because just nobody else wanted to do it. <laughs> I just... Um, <laughs> But anyway, that, um, so like any startup, it wasn't, you know, like the vast majority of startups that eventually are successful, it didn't happen overnight. It took five, six, seven years, which is, I think that's normal to do that. It just doesn't, people want to believe that these things happen overnight and they don't. Yeah. So we did that in the middle of that too, is when I ended up going to Afghanistan. I was still in this guard unit in St. Louis. Um, actually I, and, and I was, uh, in a, I was a civil engineering officer. So, um, we were part of a group that was responsible for helping, um, be an engineering, almost like an engineering, uh, uh, firm for very, for the military. A lot of what we were doing was to try to help restore, um, some things like uh, buildings that were kind of falling down or, you know, it was, you know, there was a lot of road design and bridge design and things like that that we were trying to do over there. And then the Army would, would go out and be building these things all throughout the country. So Doug spends about six months in Afghanistan working as a civil engineer. He returns home to his wife and young children in 2005 and is back to his other life as a software engineer for a company that's in the middle of being acquired. And so, so as you get back, so my vision is just kind of wrapping up now. And they're about to sell in 2006, I believe you said. How does that kind of go down? And were you involved in that? Yeah, it was, uh, at the time, uh, it was a pretty competitive market. And we were kind of this upstart. And there was a lot of small companies that were kind of doing software e-commerce sales. And a lot of them were being bought by this company in Minneapolis called Digital River, who'd bought like 20 of these things. And I, in my mind, I kept thinking, geez, Digital River, they're a publicly traded company. They should be able to crush us. You know, we... We, we definitely should sell, you know, because I don't, you know, what if they come in and just kind of completely wipe us out through, you know, I, I just was, I was kind of intimidated by them. Digital River wanted to buy us to prevent somebody else from buying us, which is 
make a note of this. That's a terrible way to get acquired. <laughs> it was not a great experience for, for folks. Um, I, I stayed around to help with the transition. And then they, they came in and said, yeah, we've done some analysis. Your company, you have 45 people, whatever. We, we're certain you can run this company with 17 people. So we want you to start laying. And we're like, I'm like, there's no way you can run this company with 17. You have no appreciation for what was built here. And so I, I probably, I spent whatever political capital I had. Um, I really, I really tried. I made arguments. I went to Minneapolis multiple times. I said, you got to keep these people, especially on the engineering side. So we were able to preserve all the engineering jobs with that. So I felt really good about that, but I didn't make any friends up in Minneapolis as a result. And so by spring of 2007, it was pretty clear that I needed to move out of there because I was just becoming this lightning rod. They told us too afterwards, they're like, you know, we tried to offer free services to your employee, to your customers. We never got any of them to come over. And I, it just, it occurred to me, it's like, we didn't need to sell to these guys. We were just fine. <laughs> they were never going to be able to to, to kind of bury us like I thought, but. Was it profitable to you as sellers when, when that happened? Are you able to discuss what the, the transaction was or how that worked out? Well, this is another, you know, um, thing about Steve Keen. So he, Steve owned the company entirely, but he'd always said that, you know, if, and when we sell this company, I'm going to, I'm going to share the sales share the, 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 the money with the employees. And they, he was under no obligation to do any of that. But when he did sell the company, he half of the money went to the employees. And he, it was, it was a, yeah. That's unheard of. It was a pretty cool thing. So it's, it's I don't usually get emotional about that, but, but uh, yeah. So he, yeah, he, he's always cared about the people in his, in his company. Um, would it have been better if he actually made us owners of the company? Yeah, we probably would have paid less taxes. But, but nevertheless, um, that was remarkable. For, so for a lot of people that, you know, I'm not saying a bunch of people were able to retire or anything like that, but that, it, was still, um, it was still probably life-changing for a lot of people to be able to do that. So Doug sets out to look for the next big thing once again. He has some money in his pocket from the sale of the business, and just as a little side note, Digital River finally discontinued that platform that they acquired from MindVision just this past year. They were never really able to recreate what Doug and his team had made, but back to the story. So Doug bounces around doing a few different startups until he crosses paths with Steve Keen once again. About that time then, I, started, I worked again with Steve at a company called... Uh... Internap. He was running, he'd come back and decided he was going to run a, an engineering department for a internet network data server company. <laughs> and he was doing it in Lincoln here in the 10th floor of the terminal building. And so I came, he's like, come back here and run engineering for me. So I did that. And then inevitably then he and I would be talking about what's the, what's the next thing we should be doing. And that's kind of was the birth of the idea around Nebraska Global, because this would have been right around 2008, 2009, when all the economic crisis was happening. And we were, we were seeing a lot of, you know, concern about people coming out of our universities and leaving the state um, because they felt like there were no opportunities for them to to build or work at software tech startups here in, in Lincoln. I mean, at the time, Agile Sports Technology, which became Huddle, was still kind of a small company. 
we actually shared space with them. Steve West and I did up on in the uh, HP Lau building. They were on one end. Their 12 people were on one end. Our two people were on the other. And when you launched it, was it the idea to make like an accelerator or a, like a, sort of like a fund? The And this is where my experience with chasing VC money for that other startup played in. I didn't want to... I didn't want to have a, a situation. We want to be able to create an investment fund, a fund of money that then we would manage and invest in companies that we would build. So we it talked about kind of collapsing that the the VC entrepreneur tech team into into one company. So whether that's an incubator or something like that, I think we ended up calling it a software investment fund. So from 2010 to 2015, Nebraska Global has this strategy where they make five companies with the goal to develop them and then let them go off into the world and get additional funding and make it on their own. Well, a few of these companies survived and are doing well. Beehive is a public works infrastructure management company. Occuvera provides artificial intelligence in hospitals that predicts patient movements and prevents falls. And Eliteform is using computer vision to track athletes. And then there's Don't Panic Labs, which consists of the technical talent who helped build all these Nebraska global companies. Well, they've pivoted into a flexible web development resource, offering their services to other companies throughout the startup community here in Nebraska. And so then at that point, it kind of made sense to spin off Don't Panic Labs as its sort of own entity inside Nebraska Global. Yeah, so yeah, so the Don't Panic Labs thing came about because literally the, the term Nebraska Global was something that we pretty much just kind of came up with on at the moment to put on a pitch deck that we were going in to talk to investors. And uh, and and we're like, it, it does sound like it's a financial institution, you know? And we knew that we wanted to recruit and attract young people from the colleges to work as interns or full-time employees in this organization. So we knew we needed a better name for the, we'll call it the product development arm of Nebraska Global. So we actually worked with Arch Rival um, and hired them to do some branding for this product development team. Um, so Arch Rival helped us come up with a bunch of names, Flatwater Software or something like that, but Don't Panic was one they came up with. Like, we like this one because it kind of ties back to the Hitchhiker's Guide, to the Galaxy, so it had kind of a, a nerdy sort of uh, geeky uh, tie to it. And I'm like, I, I love that name, but I can't call a company Don't Panic. So how about we call it Don't Panic Labs? <laughs> So so that became kind of this internal branding, internal branding of our engineering. That's what we'd go to the university and say, yeah, we're, we're representing Don't Panic Labs, which is the product development arm of, of Nebraska Global. What about your journey in Nebraska or starting Don't Panic Labs in Nebraska, do you think has contributed to its success? So a couple things. I do think... Um, I do think there is something different about Nebraska. There's a certain kind of humility that people have. There's a there is a work ethic or in uh, around it that that I think people are proud of being from here, you know. Um, and I think that's helpful. You know, we don't have a lot of we don't we don't have a lot of drama at our work. You know, people pretty even killed and and well grounded. And I think that's really important because I the one thing I can't take is having a lot of drama. I just really don't want drama in the workplace. Last year, Don't Panic Lab worked on over 30 different projects for small to medium-sized companies without web dev teams, and almost all of them are from right here in Nebraska. I'm JT Martin, and this has been a Grindstone production. Grindstone is one of the premier production and marketing firms here in Lincoln, offering everything you need to grow your business in 2020 
from video and podcast production to social media management and media buying. You can learn more by visiting grindstoneagency.com. I accepted a job back here, but I, I had a friend working with Steve. And he said, I didn't know you were looking for a job back. Why don't you come out and talk to us? And I literally sat in a room with half the company, which was four or five people. And it was a great conversation. It was the weirdest interview I've ever had. And and at the end, they were like, yeah, we want to bring you on. I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I'm like, well, we'll figure something out, you know. 